0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin with, I thought that I'd better remove some confusion that I seem to have created here in the Salon. Since launching the Salon 2 track... You have heard both myself and Lex Pelger talk about Patreon, which is a site that allows people to directly support artists, writers, musicians, and podcasters, among others. Both Lex and I have personal Patreon accounts where a few people send us whatever amount they want to each month. The funds from those accounts go directly to each of us personally. But to support the web presence of the Psychedelic Salon, after the first few years of supporting it out of my own pocket... I began to accept donations due to the fact that, well, our numbers had grown to a point where it was getting too expensive for me to do on my own, and so I began accepting donations to help offset some of those expenses. Now, over the past 12 and a half years, there have been many millions of downloads made by well over a million people, and out of that number, and over the past decade, there have been somewhere around 300 to 350 people who have made donations to keep us going, so, uh, in a way, you can say that the wonderful people who make direct donations to the salon are one in a million. They are the heart and soul of these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon, and without them, well, we wouldn't be sharing this time together right now. Hopefully that gives you a little better idea about the difference between our Patreon followers who are supporting our personal work and our wonderful fellow saloners who make direct donations to keep the salon going. And, during the past three weeks, the Salon has received direct donations from Douglas H., Daryl H., and Joel M., all of whom I would like to thank from the bottom of my heart. You have provided the fuel, and now it's my turn to light the fire. So, today I'm going to begin podcasting the Planque Norte lectures that were held at this year's Burning Man Festival. And, thanks to Frank Nuccio, we have some excellent recordings of all the talks something that I was never able to pull off myself when <laughs> when I first began that lecture series. It's not so easy to do out in the playa. So, uh, Frank, along with the rest of our fellow Saloners, I send my sincere thanks for all of your hard work out there. And I also want to thank everyone at Camp Soft Landing, and particularly those who work to produce these lectures. I know how tough that can be out there on the playa. It's a difficult task and is done by a core of volunteers. And we owe them all a big debt of gratitude. And I should also add that Frank has offered to buy me a ticket to Burning Man in 2022. Why so far in the future, you ask? Well, uh, my friend Bruce Damer let it slip to Frank that I told him that if all went well, I would come back to the burn that year to celebrate my 80th birthday. And now that Frank has offered to remove one of the big obstacles to my making another burn, I guess that I'm going to have to begin getting a little more serious about actually doing that. (laughs) So uh, thanks for that as well, Frank. Now, my previous podcast from here in the Psychedelic Salon 1.0, I featured a talk by Gore Vidal, along with a few highly political comments by myself. And, to be honest, I was a little surprised at some of the responses that I received about that program. Many of them were negative. And here's part of one of my favorite negative comments, and I'm quoting, Can you please just stick to posting psychedelic research and McKenna talks and leave the spreading of leftist political ideology to professionals like Salon or CNN? I used to come to this podcast to educate myself and learn about interesting, non-politically fired subjects. Or, if there were politics, people like McKenna would at least take an unbiased stance, if anything. But now I should listen to your rapid leftist rants because somebody in the White House doesn't like sodomites, terrorists, and illegal criminals? End quote. (laughs) It goes on, but I think you get the gist. So, I thought that today, I should carry on with yet another political discussion. (laughs) You see, I learned a long time ago that if I'm not pissing somebody off, then, well, I'm not doing a very good job. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not doing this just to make people mad. The reason that I'm doing another politically favored talk is in the hope that it will help you to open your mind a bit more and give you yet another view of what is meant by psychedelic thinking. You see, the word psychedelic does not of itself imply that drugs are involved. The word was originally coined to mean mind manifesting. And for me at least, one of today's writers has for many years now helped me to think about things in ways that I hadn't conceived of before. His name is Cory Doctorow, and this will be the third time that I've had the pleasure of featuring him here in the salon. Hopefully this talk won't offend too many people but we would have a rather narrow-minded group of fellow swaners if it doesn't rustle at least a few feathers here and there. But, hey, we're big kids now, and so I hope that we can all get something positive from this very interesting Palenque Norte lecture by Cory Doctorow.
1: Our next speaker is Cory Doctorow. Trumpism knocks us back.
2: Thanks, everyone. Uh, Thank you for coming. It's very nice to be back at Palenque Norte for, I think, the fourth, fifth time, maybe. Uh, Nice to see some of you again. So this is a talk I gave this year at uh, DEF CON, which is a big hacker conference in Las Vegas. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to reprise it for you folks. I've, I've changed it a little because I'm assuming that you're not all cryptographers and security experts. But it kind of relates to to something that's happened in my own work, which is, you know, I work in part for Electronic Frontier Foundation. We work on privacy and, and uh, uh, free speech as they relate to the Internet. Uh, and obviously the uh, election of Donald Trump was kind of uh, a a sad moment for us for not just the obvious reasons that the whole country shared, but in specific, the issues we work on and some of the policy fights that we'd made some progress on suddenly started to roll back. And I got to thinking about how to understand policy setbacks and how to understand policy advances and what we really mean when we say we're winning or we're losing these big fights. Um, So you may remember during the, the Obama administration, um, Obama uh, elect, uh, appointed this guy Tom Wheeler to run the FCC and at the time I think a lot of us were really worried because Tom Wheeler uh, is a former telecoms lobbyist, uh, John Oliver famously called him a, a dingo babysitter right, you know, you take this guy who'd worked for the big cable operators and you put him in charge of regulating the cable operators um, and uh, there was this push to get Tom Wheeler to, uh require that ISPs uh, treat the internet as a kind of dumb pipe and that it be uh, that we have a neutral internet by by kind of regulation as well as by, by custom. And um, this was called Title II regulation. And lots and lots of people phoned in, lots of people emailed, lots of people went in person and then in uh, February uh, of 2015, February 26, 2015, Tom Wheeler, the dingo babysitter, actually gave us a network neutrality regulation. He gave us what we'd been asking for. And it was a, if it was a day where it felt like we'd won. Um, he even uh, went further. You know, a lot of the states uh, have rules, state rules, that ban cities from providing broadband to the people who live there, even if no cable operator or phone company want to, uh, want to give uh, uh, broadband to the people who live in the state or the city. Um, And uh, he said that those rules exceeded the state's jurisdiction, that only the FCC could make rules about who could and couldn't be an ISP, that the states couldn't do it. So he was opening the door for cities to serve their own citizens as well. So it was an amazing day. And then, like, a year later, January 20th, Donald Trump is sworn in, and he uh, immediately appoints this guy named Ajit Pai, to run the FCC. And Ajit Pai is also pretty thoroughly a dingo babysitter. Uh, he hates net neutrality. Uh, he has been a staunch opponent of net neutrality through his whole career, uh, much of which he spent working as a lawyer and lobbyist for the telecoms. Um, and he promised that his, uh, his first order of business would be to dismantle the Title II regulations and uh, get rid of net neutrality rules in America. And so on July 12th, there was this day of action. Um, and now there is this day of reckoning that's going to come where we find out what Ajit Pai does as a result of all of these people who wrote in and called. And it begs the question, you know, are we winning or losing the fight for net neutrality? Are we winning because Ajit Pai uh, got millions of phone calls? Are we losing because Ajit Pai has promised to steam ahead? And the, I think the thing is that that's the wrong sort of question because political change is a process and not a product. Uh, and it's a process governed by four forces, forces that Lawrence Lessig set out uh, in his uh, book uh, Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace in 1999. So Lessig says that the world is regulated by the confluence of code, markets, laws, and norms, that what's technologically possible, what's legal, What's considered moral or, or right and what's profitable determines what happens. Um, and uh, I think that this is a, a framework to use to understand whether or not we're winning or losing and how to win more and lose less. So let's look at where network neutrality stands now. Uh, on the code side, well, this Lessig uh, protege, this guy named Tim Wu, uh, who had served in the FTC uh, and um, then at Columbia and then went to work for the um, Attorney General of New York, he uh, uh, got some open source measurement tools and he gave them to New Yorkers to measure their internet speed. Uh, And find out what actually happens when you buy internet service from one of the few companies legally allowed to give you internet service in New York. And uh, in June 2016, he sent an open letter to Time Warner Cable that said, uh, in advertisement after advertisement, Time Warner Cable promised a, quote, blazing fast, quote, super reliable internet connection. Yet it appears the company has been failing to take adequate or necessary steps to keep pace with the demand of Time Warner Cable customers, at times letting uh, connections with key internet content providers become so congested that large volumes of internet data were regularly lost or discarded. So so we now have technology that we can use to actually show that the network access that we're being promised and that we're paying for is uh, is not what we're getting. So that w- that's actually a big thing. Prior to that, when we would say to the cable operators or the ISPs, your internet sucks. They would say no, it doesn't. Everyone hates their internet. No one likes it when there's the occasional slowdown. But uh, our internet is perfectly fine. Uh, we are the only ones qualified to tell you whether our internet is perfectly fine because we run an ISP and you don't. You know, never mind that they're the only ones legally allowed to. Uh, hmm? Bits per second. Bits per second. Well, yeah, and uh, and so and so we get um, and so now we can actually quantify like. How bad does the internet suck? We can also quantify, did it just get better or worse, right? We try a thing, we can tell you whether or not the thing worked. So we now have a new code element in our arsenal to use in the fight over network neutrality. How about the law? Well, um, we have uh, Title II that's in law, right? There's a rule now that says ISPs have to be neutral. And we have a guy who says he's going to get rid of it. Uh, And um, we have a fight looming. The composition of the FCC is fixed by statute, so um, maybe if Congress wanted to, they could pass a law that would change the composition of the FCC. Uh, but it seems unlikely that we would get any legal reform in the composition of the FCC. Not necessarily because there aren't people in Congress who'd like to do that for good reasons and bad, but because um, Congress can't even like fucking pass a budget, right? So they just they, like uh, in general for the, like the last ten years, counting on legislation being the thing at the federal level being the thing that changes what goes on has been kind of a mugs game, just because the legislative agenda has been a fucking basket case uh, for a couple of administrations. Um, how about markets? Well, markets suck. Um, telcos are uh, the original highly concentrated industry. They're what economists call naturally occurring monopolies. There's you know, only one right of way, and the carriers uh, usually have an exclusive lease to it. Uh, it often doesn't make economic sense to run a second set of wires once the first set of wires is in there. Um, and moreover, the traditional hedge against the telcos in markets has been the online companies. The online companies make money from a neutral internet. The telcos make money from a discriminatory internet because they can extract revenue from the online companies. But now the telcos are buying the online companies, right? So now Verizon owns Tumblr. Uh, Tumblr was one of the great forces for mobilizing people for Title II in 2015. Tumblr was pretty missing in action in 2017. And so markets are, are not our friends. Um, and the other thing that's happened is that the winner-take-all economics of... Networks in general, and and our economic system more particularly at this moment, has turned a lot of last year's pirates into this year's admirals. So, like uh, we had uh, we had you know um, uh, Netflix as one of the great advocates for a neutral internet because they correctly perceived that one of the things that Uh, really was at risk in a discriminatory network environment was that cable operators in particular who viewed Netflix as a direct competitor and were worried about cable cutting would block Netflix uh, and then charge extra for Netflix access and use the fact that videos were big files to uh, go after Uh, Netflix and say, well, we're not blocking Netflix. We're just blocking certain kinds of big files that are latency sensitive because they interfere with our network management. Now, Netflix, since the 2015 fight, has become so interwoven into our lives that now in an investor call, their CEO said, you know, we still think network neutrality is important, but it's not an existential risk uh, because uh, we as Netflix... um, are pretty sure that any ISP or any uh, uh, cable operator that blocked us would face such howls of outrage from their customers that we would be able to come back. And, and so we feel okay about our future uh, with, with this. And we'll fight for it, but it's not a fight to the death. So that's bad news. So the ba- it's bad news about markets. It's not great news about law. Pretty good news about technology. But where we have amazing news is in norms. Uh, People care about network neutrality. Uh, Decrying network neutrality right now, like saying I don't like network neutrality, makes you sound like a colossal asshole. Uh, Network neutrality is counted as a victory that we have won. People believe that they have the right to net neutrality. Millions of people wrote to their lawmakers on July the 12th. Like more than 10 million wrote and called lawmakers on July the 12th. There's evidence in hand... Uh, from the telcos that Title II didn't in- affect their um, uh, investment in network infrastructure. One of the things they said is, if you regulate us and make us have a neutral internet, we won't spend any money on network infrastructure. Then when they started having to make investor calls where, like, if they were caught lying, they would be personally criminally liable for, for uh, telling a lie, they said, actually, although we said that we would change our investment, as a result of net neutrality. We're not going to change our investment as a result of net neutrality. And and so norms are huge. Uh, and we have millions of Americans who today care about telecoms policy. I mean, telecoms policy. I find it difficult to remain interested in telecoms. I mean, it is the most boring subject Im- imaginable. And yet we have arrived at this bizarre moment in 2017 where millions of people who are not network engineers, have no money invested in phone companies, are not in any way specialized in, in telecoms policy, really have deeply held beliefs in, telecom, in telecoms policy. It is almost impossible to overstate how fucking weird it is <laughs> that people care about telecoms policy. And, and that's an amazing thing, right? That is an asset that the fight over network neutrality has notably lacked for its entire history, right? The biggest deficit network neutrality had was that nobody even cared about the whole domain of telecoms policy, let alone this one weird corner of it. So are we winning or losing on telecoms policy? Well, it's both, right? Last year, we leveraged our norms to win a legal battle. This year, the legal side got a huge push from the market side because the government got bought out by big telco. But this year, we got bigger norms, right? Our norm, our normative power keeps growing. Because even the politicians uh, who got bought, they got elected because they were backed by Netroots who really care about an open internet uh, on, on both sides, right? Any Netroots insurgent candidate really, really has a base that cares about network neutrality because they all uh, view their political power as emanating from the ability to have open and free networks where they can talk to one another and organize and rally. Um, and so that includes, you know, the Trumpist side of, of the uh, of the Republican Party as well. The politicians themselves might favor a more controlled lockdown network because now that they've been elected, they're not all that interested in insurgencies. They would they would rather have some stability. But their base really really understands that this is important. So. Um, are we winning or losing? Never mind. Winning or losing is the wrong sort of question. The right side of question is, how do we win more than we are right now? And how do we make our adversaries lose more? This is like a security problem. When you're red teaming an adversary, right? When you're trying to figure out what weaknesses your adversary has, you look for their weak points and you attack them with their strengths. And our strength is in norms. Uh, you know, net neutrality, it's not regulating the internet Uh, Telecoms is regulation, right? There is no telecoms without regulation. Uh, You know, like a phone company without regulation is an impossible undertaking because unless you can get a government to give you the right to put poles on every corner and dig into everyone's basement and dig trenches along the long rights of way that go from New York to Los Angeles and to every other major point in the country, then um, you will spend trillions and trillions of dollars and still end up with like the holdout problems where you, know, you, you want to buy that last house that has that last quarter miles worth of, of uh, place where you need to run your wire and there's no other way around it And those people raise the price to your entire marginal operating profit for the next 10 years because they know they can because you've got all these sunk costs. So without a government to impose a regulation that gives you a subsidy in the form of these rights of way, there's no ISP, there's no telecoms, there's no phone companies. Phone companies are just regulations. So we're not arguing about whether there should be regulation. We're arguing about whether the regulation will be in the service of the people or the incumbent telecoms giants. And will we win this time? That's the wrong question. It would rock to get Ajit Pai to back off, to win an important victory against this dingo babysitter who uh, showed up promising to kill net neutrality and make him back down. That would win us a huge legal and normative fight, right? Because we would be emboldened. Millions of more people would enter into this weird thing of having a a, a strong point of view about obscure technical subjects of telecoms policy. Um, And it would also rock to kick his ass in a court of law, right? To have him pass this rule and then show in a court that he was fucked up and wrong. Either one would be a huge morale booster and either one would create a lot more net neutrality stakeholders who were pirates still and not yet admirals. Uh, when, when, net ne- when net neutrality rules are in place, new businesses can start. And when net neutrality rules are nuked, small businesses can't start and big businesses consolidate their gains. So, you know, telecoms advocates in the 1980s, they thought that they'd won when the FTC broke up AT&T. But then the carriers came roaring back because, of course, they did. Our victory didn't cause all those greedy, anti-competitive telecoms executives to, like, convert to Buddhism and move to an ashram. Uh, they hadn't lost; they just had this like business, legal, and normative setback. They worked at the margins, like Voldemort recovering his powers on the back of some poor asshole's head, nursing themselves back to power, merging and coalescing, working in Congress. And it helped that at the same time, you know, finance capital was devouring the world and like favoring firms that got bigger and bigger, and and, and gutting gutting the uh uh gutting the, you know competition rules and so on, and uh, maybe you know, we can outspend them, maybe we can win on the market side finally. The total value of the ecosystem that they're strangling with network discrimination is much larger than the petty profits that they get to trouser by discriminating. But every pirate wants to be an admiral, and so the insurgents who bankroll net net neutrality today will be tomorrow's telecom chums happy to slip big ISP a few bucks for premium carriage if it means their upstart competitors can be walled off from their customers. It's like that final line in Animal Farm. The creatures look from pig to man and man to pig, and it's impossible to tell which is which. So just like it's useless to ask if, it's win- if we're winning or losing, it's useless to ask whether companies are on our side or not on our side. Companies aren't on our side. The right question is um, how can we improve our situation and which companies can we enlist to do so right now while they have a confluence of interest with us? So I want to apply this to some other issues. Um, one is backdoors. So EFF, we made our bones with uh, fighting backdoors in crypto. Uh, in 1992, we represented this mathematician, computer scientist named uh, Daniel J. Bernstein, DJB, uh, who um, was arguing that he had the First Amendment free speech right to write code that embodied strong cryptography and put it on the internet, even though the NSA said that was ammunition. Uh, And we won. And it was a triumph of law over norms, markets, and code. uh, Because um, we had tried to win with code. We we tried to just make strong crypto available. And that hadn't been sufficient. No one was starting businesses to do it. No one was bringing it to people. Uh, People weren't sure if they could export it or use it in their products. Um, We tried uh, showing that... um, the cipher that the NSA said was, was uh, uh, sufficient for civilian use uh, was insufficient. So John, who's sitting over there, built a computer called the Cracker that, for about a quarter million dollars in about two hours, could exhaust the entire key space of this cipher that the NSA wanted us all to use to protect our medical records, our bi- banking records, our military secrets, everything. And he showed that you know the, all of that could be taken over for a quarter million dollars in a couple hours. It didn't work. Um, we uh, tried to get the finance industry to show up and say, like, our banks need better security. That didn't work. Um, no one understood crypto. That didn't work. Uh, we, we, uh, we tried uh, all of that stuff. But what eventually carried the day was this legal strength that we had, which is that the First Amendment protects expressive speech. And the way programmers express themselves is by writing code. And so code is a form of expressive speech. And the Ninth Circuit and then the Ninth Circuit Appellate Division excuse me, upheld our argument on behalf of DJB that code, uh, that, that code was speech and that crypto should be given to civilians, and we won this fight. Now, this law is very US-specific. No, no other countries have an exact analog to the First Amendment, and even countries with strong free speech protections fall short of the kind of absolute free speech protection that was invoked in, in Bernstein. Um, so, for example, Canada has the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and there's the um, uh, human rights directive in, in the EU. But under both of those, it's probably okay to ban strong crypto on speech grounds, whereas in the U.S. it's not. And so the U.S. became a guardian of the world's working crypto. Uh, you know, Whenever anyone in one of these other countries that had weaker free speech laws proposed uh, backdoors for, for crypto that would allow cops or governments to spy on people, um, the uh, uh, response was, well, we could pass that shitty, stupid law But, you know, the U.S. is going to just keep on exporting strong working crypto to our people, and then that's just not going to work very well. This legislation will not achieve its stated goal. So the U.S. fights, they're very important. That's why everyone was watching so closely after the San Bernardino shootings when Apple was being uh, inveigled by the FBI to introduce backdoors into iOS to break into the iPhone that the San Bernardino shooters had used. (laughs) Thank you. So... (laughs) What happens when we apply Lessig's four factors to backdoors? Well, on the norm side, I think we're starting to win here, right? We've had a couple of giant leaks of uh, hoarded vulnerabilities that the spy services had um, either discovered or deliberately introduced that turned out to be, like, really bad news. So the CIA had all these leaks uh, called the Vault 7 leaks. Um, These were backdoor or or vulnerabilities in in commonly used computers and systems that um, uh, the CIA had discovered, uh, that they'd kept a secret and that they had learned how to exploit so that they could attack their adversaries. Um, And when they leaked onto the internet, they were taken over by petty criminals and by foreign governments and used to attack Americans and other people. And all of a sudden, people who never really understood this kind of backdoor slash zero-day hoarding issue started to pay attention. Um, We hit a kind of tipping point. Then the shadow brokers happened as well. The shadow brokers was an NSA leak, much the same. Um, And then the shadow brokers leaks got integrated into an old piece of ransomware and turned into a new piece of ransomware called WannaCry, which shut down uh, hospitals, financial institutions, mass transit systems, aviation systems all over the world. And the amazing thing about about uh, WannaCry and these other ransomware attacks is that although historically the argument has been uh, we need to retain these cyber weapons so we can attack like evil supervillains, the actual uh, use of these cyber weapons when they appeared in the field was uh, they were wielded by dum-dums, right? So, like, does anyone know what the ransom was for WannaCry? What $350. You, $350. You had to give the anonymous dum-dums who operated WannaCry $350 to unlock your hospital, right? Now, in theory, they could have asked for more than $350. Why didn't they ask for more than $350? They had no idea what they had. It, we we worried about we worried about supervillains and it turned out that we got this in the hands of dum-dums. Meager villains. <laughs> Meager villains. Well the problem is that we kind of we feel like we can game out the motivations of supervillains like Kim Jong you know Kim Jong-il is, is gonna do this or that based on, you know, these vast geopolitical forces and what's going on in other parts of the world. But like unpredictable, unstable people who don't really understand what they have they're like people who, like, smash your car window for the quarter you left on your dashboard, right? Like, you can park your car under a streetlight and, you know, make sure that, like, you know, you've, you've, you've got it insured and so on, and generally that protects you against car thieves, but it doesn't protect you against the person who's so drunk that they smash your car window for a quarter, and we have put massive, super-powerful cyber weapons in the hands of the kinds of people who smash your car window to, to get the quarter. So... Uh, on top of that, so, so this has really pushed the normative discussion. Uh, the other thing that's really pushed the normative discussion against backdoors is that there is and remains no evidence that supervillains are going dark. So the spy agencies keep saying, well, someday all the bad guys will go dark and we won't be able to uh, spy on them and they won't use encryption. or They'll all use encryption and we won't be able to figure out what they're doing and millions of people will die and it'll be your fault because... uh, you invented this cool cryptography without understanding that bad guys would use it. And although, you know, eventually bad guys are going to figure out better OPSEC, generally speaking, like, you know, the terrorists who who, uh, attacked uh, Paris, they, like, left a laptop in a garbage can at the scene with an unencrypted folder on the desktop that was called Secret Plans, right? There's just no evidence that the bad guys are going dark. Uh, and there 's an increasing an increasing uh, um, appreciation of the fact that the spy agencies can do a shit ton with metadata without having to actually read your email just by knowing. You know, Alice sends a message to Bob and Bob sends a message to Carol, uh, and then Carol does a thing. That's, that is itself a, a very useful piece of knowledge that the spy agencies were never able to get hold of before, and now they have access to it in huge numbers. And so they actually have a much better view into what people are doing and what they have done retrospectively than they ever had. In, in, in contrast to the story of going dark, what's really happening is they're getting uh, superb telemetry. <laughs> on everyone on earth uh, and their, their uh, claims of helplessness in the face of computerization just ring hollow um, so uh, there's also a counterforce uh, to this in the norm side there's a lot of hysteria about the dark net uh, there's a lot of um, uh, negative uses of cryptocurrency like real actual non-hysterical ones like cryptocurrencies are now like the go-to way to get paid for a kidnapping for example um, but uh, but you know the norm story. It's a kind of a little of this, a little of that. On the market side, all good news. Full disk encryption uh, is now standard in almost every operating system, mobile, desktop. It's just become like the uh, the kind of default. Uh, nobody would try and sell uh, a commercial OS that didn't have full disk encryption. It's hilarious to watch the spy agencies try to figure out how to talk about this because you know, like five, ten years ago, the, the argument went: um, You guys are, uh, are are making full disk encryption tools, but your customers don't want them. You are out of step with the rest of the world. You should stop making full disk encryption. And now they're saying. Uh, you guys have all these customers who want full-disk encryption, but you know that full-disk encryption is a force for evil. Um, and so even though you're in step with the world, you should stop making full-disk encryption, right? It's, it's kind of having their cake and eating it, too. Um, we have WhatsApp uh, on the market side. you know. Uh, we have uh, the, this, like, you know tool fielded by Facebook that's used by billions of people that now uses super shit-kicking end-to-end encryption. They've made some compromises on the way that make it slightly weaker than it could have been, Uh, but um, it's still very strong and very good, and they're acclimating millions of people to the idea that they should have end-to-end cryptography in their messaging, and it would be uh, completely unlikely for someone to enter the market, in the West anyways today, with a messaging tool that didn't have end-to-end crypto. Um, now the bad news on markets is that AT and T made tens of millions of dollars selling backdoors into their network. Uh, this was a thing revealed in the Snowden regulation, in the Snowden leaks, and then reported in, in the New York Times by Heinrich Molka and, and Laura Poitras. Um, the zero-day trade is alive and well, and um, countries around the world are able to buy their way into a surveillance state. Uh, by uh, just buying in tools from Western uh, countries and the companies that are headquartered there. So we have a client at at EFF, uh, Mr. Kidani, who's an Ethiopian dissident in exile, who lives in Washington, D.C., who um, left Ethiopia under threat of his life. And in D.C., the Ethiopian government hacked him using a tool from an Italian company called Hacking Team uh, and uh, broke into his Skype figured out who his friends were in Ethiopia and then tracked them down and arrested them and tortured them. And so the, uh, the new existence of turnkey surveillance states, again, this is kind of the dum-dum problem again, states that have no uh, internal uh, uh, IT capacity are becoming super sophisticated surveillance states. And generally, I think it's, it's uh, understood or at least believed that um, the Western states that sell them or the you know, technologically developed states that sell them these surveillance tools backdoor the surveillance tools. so They perform what's called third or fourth party collection where they spy on another country's spy agency to collect all of their their data as well as another Snowden revelation. I mean, you <laughs> Thank you. So uh, on the law side, uh, well, we still have the First Amendment and Bernstein. Right? The First Amendment is intact. Bernstein is intact. Um, but hard cases make bad law. Uh, terrorist attacks are a thing. Uh, eventually, terrorists will use crypto. We will have cases that emerge out of that where um, siding against uh, um, against uh, a backdoor in crypto will be, uh, at least in many people's eyes, siding as uh, with the terrorists. Um, there's a version of this playing out right now. Uh, there's a free speech version, which is like, should... ISPs and domain, registers, uh, domain registrars and um, top-level domain uh, systems, should they be in charge of policing content? And there are a lot of people who, if they thought about it at all, probably would have said no until it became a super convenient way to make the Daily Stormer disappear. And the Daily Stormer is odious and terrible and all of us hate it, I suppose. Uh, I certainly do. But um, generally speaking, when we are uh, trying to get those companies not to police content... We 're trying to get them not to police the content of people you agree with because the people you agree with tend to have less power and money uh, than than you know rich, powerful people who. Uh, are generally on the same side as the Daily Stormer, or at least parts of the Daily Stormer's agenda, if not the whole agenda. Uh, it is rare for a, an organization like the Daily Stormer to be the one in these crosshairs. And if we make it much easier to get rid of websites like the Daily Stormer, mostly we're going to be using those rules to get rid of websites like Black Lives Matter. And so it's become really hard for people who advocate for, uh, for those uh, private entities who operate these choke points on the internet not to be content regulators to uh uh uh, to talk about why the daily stormer even if we don't want it on the internet the right way to get rid of it is not to target those people uh and um you know that's going to be that think about that in the context of terrorism there's going to be a lot more people who feel very deeply about why terrorism is wrong than are upset about the daily stormer uh and imagine what it's going to be like arguing for uh against backdoors then um, so we, we already see that emerging. Uh, in Australia, the, uh, uh, the Prime Minister and their Security Minister have both advocated for all of the Five Eyes countries, that's Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the US, uh, and the UK, uh, mandating back doors. Uh, the Prime Minister of Australia gave a press conference where he said, uh, well, the laws of mathematics are all well and good, but I assure you that in Australia, the laws of Australia are the laws of Australia. Uh, and that you know the laws of mathematics are, you know, can go hang because the, we have a legislature. Uh, presumably, he doesn't feel this way about the law of gravity or any of the other physics, physical laws, just, just the laws of mathematics. Uh, in China, they've banned VPNs uh, unless they have a backdoor. Um, that ban is actually rather old, but they started enforcing it against um, mobile apps, uh, and Apple and, and uh, the Android stores have gone along with them. Now, so the, the law space, not so good, But the code space is in pretty good shape because crypto works. Um, If there's a problem with crypto right now, it's not the crypto, it's that we are increasingly engaged in computing models that treat their owners or users as their adversaries. Where we have devices whose role is to figure out how to stop you from doing something, not help you do something. And um, the crypto only works If it's performing its job faithfully, if it's uh, betraying you, if it's badly done or if it has a backdoor or if it's in some other way not fit for purpose, uh, then crypto stops working. It only works when it works. And designing computers to be adversaries of their users sets the stage for computers that betray their users at the endpoint. Uh, instead of you know, so the math is intact, crypto totally works. It's just not performed well because at the at the endpoint in your laptop, in your mobile device, and your other uh, IoT embedded systems device, the manufacturers decided to lock you in using a system that deliberately hides itself from your inspection and invokes laws and other systems to prevent you from modifying it, understanding it, or or sort of plumbing its depths. And so I call that the war on general purpose computing. Uh, and in the war on general purpose computing... We have these devices. They started as games consoles and entertainment devices and uh, uh, DVD players and inkjet printers that uh, tried to be computers that could run all the programs except for one or two that pissed off the manufacturer. So, like, a DVD player was the computer that could run all the programs except for the one that let you play a disc from out of region. And a, a Nintendo... Was a games console was a computer that could run all the programs except for the ones that hadn't been blessed by Nintendo, uh, and a um, an inkjet printer was a printer that could run all the pr- a computer that could run all the programs except for the program that allowed you to bypass the handshake between the cartridge and the printer so that you could use third-party ink, and um, this is more this is generically called DRM or digital rights management, uh, and it's a stupid idea. Uh, you, you can't hide secrets in equipment that you give to your adversaries. Uh, so if you expect that no one is going to figure out where the cryptographic keys are that stop you running these unauthorized programs in a device that you hand over to your adversary, you're going to be disappointed. For the same reason that even if you design a really good bank safe and put it in the bank robber's living room, you're going to be disappointed that your adversaries, when they, if they can take the equipment that you've hidden the secrets in to their own premises where they have access to things like electron tunneling microscopes, and like decapping tools, and and protocol analyzers, they will eventually figure out what secret you hid in the hardware, and then once they find it, if they tell everyone else about it, then they'll know what that secret is too, and then everyone can run every program they want on their computer, and since we don't know how to make an actual computer that runs all the programs except for the ones we dislike, and all we can do to approximate it is a computer that runs all the programs, but has some kind of master program that watches to see if you're running a program that hasn't been authorized and tries to shut it down, as soon as um, uh, someone gets the secret that allows them to run any program, then all bets are off. So um, DRM is stupid, but it's not harmless. Because of its very fragility, DRM advocates aren't really interested in the DRM per se, that is, in making proprietary software that hides decryption keys from the users. Um, What they really want is the law that goes with DRM. Uh, And in the U.S., that's a law called DMCA 1201, the Section 1201 of the 1998 Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And uh, under Section 1201 of the DMCA, bypassing or removing or weakening one of these locks that tries to control which software you run on your own computer is a felony punishable by up to five years in prison and a $500,000 fine for a first offense. And DMCA 1201 has come to mean that corporations can force you to use your property only in ways that make them the most money on pain of criminal prosecution. So if a phone vendor makes more money when you buy apps from its app store instead of from the person who wrote the app directly or a third party app store, then all they need to do is design their device so that changing which app store it uses involves bypassing DRM. And since bypassing DRM is a felony, then changing which apps you buy and who you buy them from is also a felony. So conceptually, there's no difference between this and designing a toaster that uses a vision system that forces you to use official bread. Uh, or a dishwasher that uses RFIDs to make sure you only wash authorized dishes. You can even make all the same arguments, right? Well, what if you were to put a bagel in your toaster and set your house on fire? Or we only have dishes that are optimized to prevent foodborne illnesses. This is a safety thing. Plus, think of the warranty expense we would have to assume if you could toast anyone's bread in your toaster. Think of the uh, maintenance headaches that we would get into. And, you know, the people who design the dishes for our dishwasher, well, they have an intellectual property interest in those dishes. And if we allow you to put Third-party dishes in your dishwasher, then pirates could pirate those dishes and deprive our hardworking internet, you know, independent dish vendors of their uh, of their rightful uh, uh, royalties on their dishes. So there's not really any reason. Uh, to, uh, not to invoke this from a firm's perspective if they can. And as soon as you have software in your device, you can invoke these rules, right? You, these, these rules become available to you, and it becomes a kind of license to force your customers to arrange their affairs to the benefit of your shareholders instead of them. So uh, if it's your property generally speaking, we say you have the right to decide what to do with it. If having software and DRM in a device means you don't get to decide how to use your property, it's not your property anymore. In that Blackwellian sense of property being the thing that you have the sole and despotic dominion over to the exclusion of all other people, right? It's only your property if you can decide how you want to use it, whether you want to toast third-party bread, whether you want to run third-party software. So... Um, that's a benefit and not a, not a problem for the firms that are invoking it. They would like to have you be a tenant of your property forever because tenants pay rent every month, whereas, uh, whereas owners, um, they, they sever their economic relationship with the firm and only rekindle it if the firm can come up with an offer that they choose to take up because it's the best offer they can get. If a firm can exploit your sunk costs in their technology and their tools to continue to sell you aftermarket parts and services, then uh, why wouldn't they? So a bonus side effect of this is that um, because revealing a defect in a DRM system, in a copy protection system, could potentially weaken it, um, it too has become a a thing that people invoke this law over. And so reporting on a defect in a system that has this copyright stuff in it uh, can become a felony. And that means that telling someone about a flaw in a device that belongs to this increasing uh, constellation of diverse tools that um, embody things like pacemakers and uh, cars and tractors that telling them about mistakes that the programmers made, defects that the manufacturer shipped, that is also potentially a felony, also potentially a source of civil liability, also potentially punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for first offense. So um, the the security research community went to the Copyright Office about this in 2015 when they had hearings on it. They're about to open another set of hearings now. And they said that they're sitting on vulnerabilities they've never disclosed in devices as diverse as farm equipment, medical implants, voting machines, uh, and inf- key infrastructure, uh, because they feel that if they were to reveal these defects to the people who relied on these systems, that they might face copyright persecution uh, for, for revealing these defects. So this is bonkers, right? On the one hand, you have this um, uh, uh, incentive to use this stuff to lock up your devices. And on the other hand, the more devices there are that have it, the harder it is to secure those devices, because security researchers can't come forward. So, um, where do we stand on DRM? (laughs) Code. Uh, It's not hard to break DRM. It's a fool's errand, and this is not going to change. Markets. Well, there's more DRM than ever, and uh, it's making bank for companies, and that's not going to change until the law changes. Uh, GM, for example, started putting DRM in the telemetry from its engines, and now they charge $70,000 for the diagnostic tool to read out the telemetry from the engine before you fix it. That tool has a cost of goods of like $100, right? But the the, uh, 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 official tool... Cost uh, sixty nine thousand nine hundred dollars more, just as a kind of GM digital rights management tax that you have to pay. Uh, why wouldn't GM go on using that um, if they if they could? Uh, it this has a huge drag on the economy, uh, especially to small and medium enterprises, especially to repair companies uh, who end up paying this tax uh, to uh, become official repair entities for the firms. So uh, SMEs that do repair. Uh, generate uh, 200 jobs per kiloton of e waste, whereas uh, SMEs that do recycling of e waste generate 15 jobs per kiloton. So that is a huge difference. Again, that's 200 jobs to uh, repair a, a, a thousand tons of electronic waste and 15 jobs to recycle it. And that is all onshore jobs, right? Nobody sends their phone to India or China to get it fixed. You take it down to the corner shop where people in your neighborhood. Uh, who have bought a couple of manuals from iFixit and a toolkit, and who've done some online training, figure out how to fix your phone, your device, and get it working for you. So this this anti-repair, anti-service stuff, it's been a huge drag. It's one of the sources of our legal power because right to repair bills, as opposed to anti anti piracy bills, right to repair bills are now making progress in a bunch of legislatures because repair is a really easy thing for people to understand. Um, We uh, helped a set of uh, uh, researchers at the University of Glasgow do a study on the potential size of the market for devices that break DRM locks, that break these copyright locks. Um, They did a a, a small study where they scraped Amazon for DVD players, and they compared DVD players that had uh, a circumvention feature, uh, the ability to play downloaded movies, uh, which is illegal in in DVD-certified tools, with ones that didn't. So this is a pure software change. There's no new hardware in it. There's no marginal cost extra to produce this more capable DVD player. And the DVD players that had the circumvention feature controlling for number of reviews uh, and date of manufacture and overall review, those devices sold for 50% more than the commodity DVD players that followed all the rules. Now, the traditional margin on a commodity DVD player is 2%. So they were able to go from 2% to 50% uh, by, um, by, by selling these, these uh, uh, devices that broke the circumvention rules, that broke the DRM rules. So on the one hand, DRM uh, is, is holding back these markets... On the other hand, DRM is holding back these markets. There are a bunch of people who stand to make a lot of money by raiding these giant margins, right? Like, yeah, GM gets $70,000 for its repair tool but if you wanted to make a $500 repair tool, you would have every mechanic in the world beating the way to, their, to, the, to your door to buy that tool from you and you would have a mere 400% margin on your commodity hardware or pure software play that ran on a laptop that you plugged into a car engine. All we need to do is get rid of this law and we'll have this constituency to, uh, to help us so uh, on the side of norms uh, well we're, we're definitely at the point where the number of people who are indifferent to this issue is only going down more and more people are realizing that this is a problem they're aware that they get ripped off when they buy inkjet cartridges they're aware when they buy, uh, when they buy ovens that only cook food that came from a spe- specific manufacturer this is a thing juicers that only juice fruit that came from a specific manufacturer that's also a thing um we, we see uh, 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 cochlear implants that are locked to certain kinds of software, insulin pumps that are locked to certain kinds of recyclables and uh, consumables. People are increasingly aware that they are, uh, that they are being ripped off when they buy these tools, and they're fighting back against it. And they're also aware that there's a security dimension, that their Internet of Things devices are insecure, uh, that they're being used to attack them and other people, And when they find out that security researchers can investigate these tools, they become outraged because they know that these tools are very intimately bound up with their lives. And then on the law side, things are starting to look up. Uh, In 2015, we brought a lawsuit against the U.S. government uh, representing Matthew Green and Bunny Wang, uh, who are two well-known, well-liked security researchers. Bunny is here. He camps with the Institute on the Esplanade. Um, and uh, we feel like um, uh, we have a pretty good chance of winning this lawsuit, although it's going to take years, and invalidating this law. So um, I'm just going to... Uh, no, you know what? I'm, how much time do I have? Seven minutes. Seven minutes. All right. So I'm going to uh, skip the stuff about the W3C, because I've talked about that here before, and it's, uh, it's been a long haul. Um, but... Uh, I guess what I'm going to say to close here is that uh, it doesn't make you an extremist to say that DRM is bullshit Uh, it just makes you someone who isn't uh, self-serving DRM doesn't actually work Um, it, it, it can't work uh, that doesn't mean that, that it wouldn't be great to solve some of our problems by making computers that only can run certain programs, but we don't know how to make that computer. No one knows how to make that computer. There's no theoretical basis for that computer. Uh, saying DRM is bullshit doesn't make you a purist or a fanatic. It just makes you not delusional. Just, become as, just because DRM is bullshit, it doesn't mean that it's harmless bullshit. The more we rely on DRM, the more dangerous it becomes to reveal to people what their computers are doing and what defects lurk in them. And so it's a catastrophically bad idea to redesign computers to treat their owners as as adversaries. And it's also a catastrophically stupid idea, which is why the companies that are engaged in it, they're on the wrong side of history. That's why we, we should feel like there is a good chance that we will eventually win, because the future isn't full of computers that are almost Turing complete, that almost run all the programs except for the ones that giant firms don't like. Even though some quack convinced someone's pointy hair boss that DRM is a thing, that doesn't make DRM a thing. We won't win this fight because it's not the kind of fight that you win, it's the kind of fight you fight forever. Because so long as computers are important to people, someone will always want to use computers to take away our rights and not to help us exercise them. The principle of computers to enable uh, and improve the lives of the people who use them will always need defenders, and that's where we all come in, every one of us. Thank you so uh, we have time for maybe one or two quick questions, I like to call alternately on people who identify as women or non-binary and people who identify as male or non-binary can we start with someone who identifies as a woman or non-binary please greatest surprise this year in terms of policy initiatives I think we got more numbers on the net neutrality day of action than anyone thought we would A lot, like an order of magnitude more we went from like 2 million to 12 million it was fucked up, it was amazing Right, it makes it puts SOPA in the dark. Like that was crazy. Yeah.
1: Why do you think that happened?
2: I just think that we tipped. I think we hit a critical mass. Like I think that like also, um, I think that there's that procedural shenanigans are often easier to understand than substantive ones. Um, I was talking with Jen, the tea pourer in there, who's also wor- works on this anti-corruption thing where they had uh, some procedural shenanigans this year, and. Uh, I was remembering that back when I was at uh, EFF at, the w, at WIPO at the UN, um, we were fighting this really weird policy fight that like, would take forever to describe and is super boring and I'm not going to get into. And, uh, but um, we would do these handouts that we'd get indie, indie media to translate overnight. We'd, I'd get up at 5 in the morning, get them copied, and bring them to the Palleta Nations and hand them out. And someone started stealing our handouts and putting them in the, in the toilets, right? like hiding them in the bathrooms, Right. And, like, all of a sudden, people cared, right? They still didn't really understand the substantive issue. A few of them probably, like, said, oh, well, I should probably pay attention to this because someone's throwing these papers in the toilet. But more to the point, like, people were like, you don't throw your adversaries' papers in the toilet if you're on the side of righteousness, right? You know, this is like SOPA, or like... Um, uh, uh, TPP right like the fact that the meetings were all secret was itself super useful to us because like everybody understood that you don't hold trade neg- negotiations in secret because you want all the people to be pleasantly surprised right like you know there's really only one reason to play those shenanigans um, are there any people who identify as male or non-binary who'd like to ask a question
1: um, Corey it's always an inspiration to hear you um, preach and speak thank you um, it's, it's important, like, I'm, I don't feel well today, and I had to be here.
2: Oh, thank you.
1: Um, last year, you talked about something that, you know, you really educated me, and, and I've been carrying it with me for a year and talking to other people about it. Um, and it was, um, and I'm, I'm not technical, so, so please, you know, f- uh, help me or give me allowance on that. But you talked about the issue of code. And not knowing, for instance, like an Internet of Things device or a John Deere tractor, when we're buying the device, we're buying the hardware, we're only licensing the software, and we are naive to, A, how that device um, gathers data, uses data. We are naive to the laws that's actually a felony for us to simply audit and peek at that code. We are naive to the fact that we can't, uh, edit that code if we so choose to right. change a function. We are naive to our inability to optimize that code if we have creative applications or we want to innovate. Um, to build on your theme, what's the progress that we've seen on that? So,
2: so I do think I call it like peak indifference. Like we are at the point where the number of people who give a shit is only going to go up because the number of people who've like been negatively affected. Is uh, only going to go up, right? We've we've acquired so much policy debt, you know, in the form of like bad technology and bad policy as a result of this lack of understanding and and shitty policy from from uh, the regulatory side. That um, there are a whole bunch of ruptures that are in our future. That we probably it's probably too late to stop, and there is so many that have already happened now. And so, really, like what's changing is like. We're going f- moving from the uh, part of the job where we try to get people to care about this stuff. And into the part of the job where the people who show up, having had their lives destroyed by this stuff, and say, "What do I do now?" We say, "Like, well, here's like EFF surveillance self defense kit, and here's the Free Software Foundation. You can you can you know join them to like fight for free and open source software in the Software Freedom Law Center or whatever. And here's like some pitchforks and torches and the home address and phone number of the people whose depraved indifference caused all of your shit to be ruptured all over the internet forever, right? And you know that's a that's a, like a, a, speaking as someone who spent 15, 20 years trying to get people to give a shit and is now more in the business of trying to get people who already give a shit to do something, I'm feeling good. Like, I feel like that's, that's better, right? I mean, it sucks that we have this technology debt and that we're going to be paying on it for a long time. And we are in a race to see if we can get like enough people to do something to affect a change before we reach a tipping point. Beyond which our technology debt has like unimaginable consequences, and it's like climate in that regard, right? Like we we have the carbon that's in the atmosphere is in the atmosphere. It seems unlikely that we'll be able to do much to to get it out of the atmosphere. Maybe some very speculative moment in the future we'll do it, but mostly what that carbon is going to do, it's going to do. So now it's a race to see whether the like manifest effects of the carbon in the atmosphere convince us to do something to not put more carbon in the atmosphere before we reach the point that. Um, uh, it 's too late to stop putting carbon in the atmosphere, so we have to like sort of decarbonize the surveillance economy right like we have to We have to kind of get to the point where we are exerting sort of market forces, norms, laws, and code to make our devices more obedient, more secure uh, devices that empower us instead of taking away our power uh, in order to um, before before we reach the point where these devices are so widespread so poorly secured have gathered so much data about us that is in so many giant badly secured silos that um, the potential for mischief is like infinite, right? Because right now it's just it's just mind-boggling but infinite, I don't know like how we recover from that. But mind-boggling maybe we can like, you know the, when you look at the thoughts, of the, the kind of best predictions of the carbon debt that we're under, that's mind-boggling, but it's not infinite, right? Like you know, there is a way that we can kind of weather that storm. Maybe we can weather the storm. Time. I'm good. Um, one more question? Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna sit down. So it's always yeah. it's always been the case that the the most hackable part of a system is the human part. Right. Yeah. You know, and it seems like we're approaching this threshold right now with, uh, like, conversational synthesis and, you know, this, the, the, the using artificial intelligence to forge video and audio and documents. And, yeah. like, there's, there seems like we're on the cusp of an arms race about using cryptography to sort of verify documents. And so I'm, I'm curious... In terms of like getting people to even agree on the facts when it's getting easier and easier for a hoax to outrace our ability to like, debunk it, how you see this, this whole policy conversation interfacing with like, that sort of breakdown in consensus reality? So I, kind of, I break policy questions into two, uh, two sides. So one is um, making things work well, and one is making them fail gracefully. And so like graceful failure is like making sure that if you have an idea for how to detect forgeries, that it's not illegal to talk about it. Uh, Succeeding well is like coming up with great ideas to detect forgeries. I am in general skeptical of people who claim to be able to make perfect forgeries only because they tend to be working from a corpus that was not designed to thwart them. And it is without recourse to what a corpus that was designed to thwart them would be like. So there's this thing called adversarial stylometry, right? Where you have an anonymous text and you want to know who wrote it. And so you um, uh, analyze the text of a bunch of potential candidates. Like, you know, I know it's one of these 20 people uh, because only one, they, only these people were privy to this thing that the whistleblower said to the journalist. Uh, and you pull it out and um, whichever person's speech is most like the speech in the anonymous block of text, you then have a confidence rating that that person is this person, right? Well, that's great, but then someone came up with like adversarial stylometry countermeasures, which is like, I take my candidate text that I want to release anonymously, and I compare it to my uh, my own text, the text that I, that I, you know, all of the things ever published by me on the internet, and the, ad- and the, the countermeasure tool tells me how to change it so that it has none of the tells, that makes it look like my text, right? And so, now there may be a counter countermeasure, right? You know, like the the stylometry tool is only measuring like fourteen things, and there are more than fourteen things in the way that you communicate. So maybe it'll maybe the next generation of tools will use seven more things that are not that are not currently analyzed, and that your countermeasure tool wouldn't cause you to vary. Uh, but you know, at a certain point. Um, you know, or uh, at, in this like in this measure-countermeasure um, dynamic, there's there's this like there are moments where it feels like one side is comprehensively winning, and it and it usually turns out that they're not winning the way that we think they are. That there are countermeasures available, uh, and that especially when when you're at the start of something, where like someone is like, I can use. I I mean, I think you're. I, I think I know the stuff you're talking about. I heard these radio lab episodes about it. You know, these guys who've got like uh, software based. Video forgery thing. They did a thing with Obama where they got uh, synthetic Obama to lip sync a speech that real Obama had made. Um, But, like, no one's got a tool to, like, detect whether those forgeries exist. And it would be amazing if they did because the tool to make that forgery hasn't even been released yet. Um, And the fact that no one has that tool yet doesn't mean that it'll never exist. And it may be that, like, we just make that tool and then all those forgeries look really. You know, dumb and cack handed and whatever. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, a breakdown of consensus reality, I don't know that we've, I think that our like consensus reality is probably overstated, anyways. We, I think we don't have a huge consensus to begin with. There's a lot of people who live in different worlds and operate from different assumptions. So, uh, is that time or? Yep. All right. Well, thank you all very much. It was great to see you all. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: Well, I hope that wasn't too political for the snowflakes among us. And don't worry, I have no plans to shift to a permanent series of politically tinged talks. In fact, in the following weeks, I plan on podcasting a new Palenque Norte talk each week. Although I haven't listened to them all myself yet, I would be quite surprised if there is very much more to come of a political nature. That said, I want to close here today by reminding you about something that Corey said in the talk that we just listened to. He said that these political struggles to keep our communications channels free and open isn't about winning and losing. It's about staying alert to each new threat to our freedom of speech that comes along. And so I feel that I should point out the fact that just two days ago, the number two person in the Justice Department at the United States gave a speech urging Congress to pass a law that would force companies to install a backdoor in any crypto software they sell. In other words, he wants to roll back the progress that has been made to prevent just such a thing from happening. This is a never-ending story, but it's one that we need to remain aware of. And talking about free speech let's look at the thing that seems to be the most important thing on the mind of this nation's president, and that is the ongoing protest by some brave NFL athletes who choose to take a knee when the national anthem is played. First of all, as a Catholic schoolboy, I was taught that the highest form of respect we could pay to someone or something is to kneel before it. (laughs) So the lawyer in me could argue that these players are actually giving the anthem even more respect than those who are just standing. It's a... well, it's a weak argument, of course, but since I'm a lawyer, I just couldn't resist pointing that out. However, in all of the hullabaloo about the athletes taking a knee, the thing that seems to be lost on most people is why they are doing that. Their protest is about police brutality don't forget that the next time you see a player who is making a statement by not standing for the National Anthem. They are demonstrating against police brutality. It isn't a protest about playing the National Anthem at football games. And if you don't think that death by police is a real problem here in the States, then think about this. From the beginning of just last year, 2016, until today, there have been more people killed by U.S. policemen than have been killed by all of the terrorist attacks in this country during the past 40 years combined. So, is the biggest threat to citizens in this country coming from terrorists? Or is it coming from our highly militarized police forces? I'll let you decide that for yourself. Uh, I know where I stand. I've been thinking about many other things along these lines that I'd like to say, but... I think that for today, we've already given you more than enough to think about yourself. I don't expect all of our fellow saloners to completely agree with me, or with Corey. In fact, that would be a sorry state of affairs if we all agreed 100% on everything. But I do hope that, at least here in the salon, we can keep our discussion about our differences of opinion more civil. So, I'm going to begin by doing my part and apologize for calling some of our fellow Saloners Trump trolls, when in fact they are simply Trump supporters. And I also hope that I can be forgiven for siding with the majority of eligible voters in this country who voted for none of the above by simply not voting at all. As I said in my last podcast, I believe that this is a failed state, and what better evidence of that could there be than the fact that over half of the people in this country couldn't bring themselves to vote for either of the two realistic choices we were given. For most of my life, I wound up voting for the lesser of two evils. But when I finally figured out that either way I was still supporting evil, I decided to become more local and let the empire destroy itself without my tacit approval that continuing to vote would be. And so for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.